This talk by Joan Sutherland called Dreaming is the second talk of the Practices of the Night Retreat given at Mountain Cloud Zen Center in Santa Fe, New Mexico in May 2011. I want to start with two different maps of the night and of dreaming. One from uh, the, the viewpoint of contemporary neuroscience and then one from the Mahayana view. In, in the view of, of contemporary neuroscience, uh, dreaming is, is seen in this way, that when we're, in, when we're awake, our mind all the time is making a model of the world we're in based on the sensory experience we have. One of the things that's really fascinating to me is that that model is always a half a second behind what's actually real. So we're always living a half a second in our own past. Um, and so what's actually happening could be entirely different than, than the, the model that we're living inside of our, our mind. And of course the assumption is that where we're really living is in the model we make of the world rather than, than of the world itself. Um, so what happens in sleep is that there's so little sensory information coming in, obviously, that's the nature of sleep, that we stop making a model of it in our minds. There isn't enough d- data to construct a world in, in our minds. Um, but then, it, so in some in some parts of the cycle of sleep, we're just asleep. We're just not making a model. In other parts, in the dreaming parts, the brain is actually activated in exactly the same way it's activated during waking life. But there's no sensory information coming in. So you've got this activated brain with nothing to um, help it make a model of the external world. And so what it does is turn its attention inward. Um, to the world of the imagination and make a model of the world based on on that. That's kind of fascinating, you know, really. Um, so so that um, the model we make that's independent of the environment is a dream. Is the dream the model we make that's independent of the environment we're actually in is the dream. And again, you know, who's to say, which is more real? Is it more real if, if the mind's attention is turned outward or if it's turned inward? Who's to say? So um, Stephen Laberge, who is probably the leading researcher, at least in, in America, on, um, on lucid dreaming, uh, in particular, he's at Stanford, said that, that dreaming can be viewed as the special case of perception without the constraints of external sensory input. So he's saying, and a lot of, a lot of neuroscientists agree with this, that um, sensory, sensory input, sensory information is so overwhelming. We're receiving so much information all the time that our senses are, are overwhelmed and that our mind is overwhelmed. And so the state of waiting, waking consciousness is a consciousness that's constantly being overwhelmed. That's, that's what, so that actually sensory input um, limits our consciousness by overwhelming it. It can't cope. So it kind of narrows down. And those of us who've done retreats have found that, that one of the results of the fasting of retreat, the fasting of the senses that happens in retreat, where you're not allowing so much sensory information, so much visual and auditory um, information in, 
is that the consciousness begins to expand. So it, it tends to support that idea that in, that in general in waking life it's being limited by that sensory input. And if you lighten up on that, um, as you do in a retreat, the consciousness begins to be able to get bigger because the, the constraints have been lifted. So um, this is this is Laberge's point, and then he says, conversely, perception, um, in or, in other words, our ordinary waking state, perception can be viewed as the special case of dreaming constrained by sef- sensory input. So, per- yeah, I will. Perception can be viewed as the special case of dreaming constrained by sensory input. Yeah. So our ordinary way of perceiving the world is our dreaming state except with a bunch of sensory limitations, you know, the, the limitations of sensory input placed upon it. So, so again, which is more real, you know? And what is their actual relationship with each other? Is that clear? So did everybody get that? No? Still haven't gotten it. Okay. So um, usually we, we say that um, dreaming is what happens to consciousness when you don't have the limitations of the sensory input. Right? Sensory input is lifted in sleep. And then you get to, you dream because you, which is which is what happens when you don't have the sensory input. So we think of dreaming as um, a special kind of perception that's absent sensory input. Okay, and so Leberge is flipping it on its head and saying maybe the way we ordinarily see things is dreaming with sense limited by sensory input. That dreaming is, you know, I mean, he's playing and saying that dreaming is our natural state of awareness. And then we walk around all day and we've got all all the sensory data which tends to limit it. And, And so our ordinary way of perceiving is our dream perception except limited by our experience of the sensory world. Okay, so here's two maps of um, of dreaming and sleeping. In the in the neuroscientific view, there's a a, a lot of stages uh, that we go through in the night, and that's one of the things that I'd ask you to notice is that even even if we think of sleep and dream as two things that happen at night, actually there's about 57 things that happen at night. It's a very varied territory, a very varied landscape. Varied landscape. Sleep and dream is, and we're all Always transitioning between one state and another. It's it's a quite um, active. So in the first phase, it's called the quiet phase, and that's restful inactivity. This is summarized in that booklet I gave you last night. So the mind isn't doing very much. The breath starts slowing down and deepening. There's our, our metabolic activity, the activity of our bodies, is beginning to slow down. And um, we release growth hormones, which facilitate uh, restorative processes. So that's the restorative nature of sleep. And interestingly, it's during this phase of restful inactivity when sleep talking and sleep walking occur. 
So the first stage of the quiet phase is um, that transition between a kind of drowsy wakefulness and light sleep. Um, it's called the, the hypnagogic phase, and that's when you get those, you know when you're falling asleep and you get the, these things that seem so clear and very thought-like, they don't seem dreamlike, it's more thought-like. You could be, you feel like you're having a conversation with somebody, or you're thinking something through, or you think you're remembering, and then suddenly you wake up and realize, oh, you weren't actually all awake at all. So it's that kind of transitional phase. It's also um, when you um, have a sensation of falling and you jerk to stop yourself, right? That's a that's a hypnagogic event. Um, so again, hypnagogic. Hmm? Hypnagogic. hypnagogic, which means leading to sleep in Greek. Is that alpha? Um, I don't think it's alpha. I think it's probably beta. Does anybody know? I, I don't think it's alpha. Yeah. Yeah. Would you say beta maybe? Yeah. Yeah. Skipping in and out. Yeah. Yeah, it is definitely there's definitely a kind of movement until you finally drop. Um if you have those experiences, you know those hypnagogic moments can be really powerful because they they can come quite clearly and lucidly and they can come in the form of thoughts. You know, um, they're they're articulate and specific. So that's it's um, if you if you find yourself waking, it's important to pay attention to those. And they happen both as we're falling asleep and as we're waking up. We go into this hypnagogic phase both times. Uh, sure. So the moment when a car sort of breaks open, huh. is that a hypnagogic moment? That's a great. That's a great thought. Sure. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Because we're immediately conscious of it. It's not like we have to recall it later. We're immediately aware of the that's happened. Yeah, nice. Okay, then then we fall into um, the first phase of sleep, a kind of light sleep. And um, there's not a lot of dream usually in in light sleep. What the brain is doing looks more like thought than dreaming, but we are asleep. And then after about 20 or 30 minutes of that kind of light sleep, we fall into delta sleep. So then we're in delta waves. And they're very long and slow (coughs) and very regular. So that's deep sleep. And we're in um, we're in delta sleep, deep sleep, for uh, about 30 to 40 minutes, and then we pop back up to the lighter sleep. And then, somewhere between about 70 and 90 minutes from the time we fell asleep in the first place, we enter REM sleep for the first time. So usually our first REM cycle, our dream cycle, happens about 90 minutes um, after after we initially fall asleep. Uh, and then, so then we enter what's called the active phase, REM sleep. And um, as as probably a lot of you know, that 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 the um, that active phase includes the brain burning as much fuel as it does when it's awake, which is kind of an amazing thing. I mean, the brain is burning as much fuel as it does to make you walk around and do, lift things and think about things and do all of that. And that yet there you are. And one of the one of the characteristics of that sleep is that you're paralyzed. Your muscles are paralyzed, which <coughs> neuroscientists say is an adaptation to keep you from acting out your dreams and 
hurting yourself or others. Um, so you're in this physically paralyzed state, but your brain is burning as much as much fuel. There, there's EEG desynchronization, which means that the, like the long, slow, steady um, delta waves are just are broken up, and things are much more active and lively in the brain. You've got rapid eye movements. Your heart rate accelerates. Your breathing becomes more rapid and irregular. So it's quite a it's quite an active state. Um, and so, so you dream in the beginning of the night for just about five to ten minutes. Dreams are very brief at the beginning of the night, and after that you awaken. So that's why I was saying that you always awaken briefly after a dream, and you can remember the dream in that in that waking up. After the after the five to ten minutes of dreaming, the brief awakening, you you sink back into that light sleep, maybe into delta sleep if the cycle is long enough. And as the night goes on, and this is really important if you want to, to do this as a practice, um, as the night wears on, the length of REM sleep increases. So in the beginning, you're, the REM sleep, the dream cycle, is only 5 to 10 minutes. By 8 hours later, it's 45 minutes to an hour long. So those early morning dreams, those last dreams are 45 minutes to an hour long if you sleep long enough. And the interval, intervals between them decrease from 90, minute, 90 to 100 minutes just down to 20 to 30 minutes. But um, if you sleep a shorter amount of time, the process doesn't compress to within that time. It cuts off. So if you sleep for six hours, boom, um, you're gonna, you're, you'll be some, your dreams will have lengthened, your dream cycle will have lengthened some, but not to the full extent it would if you'd slept for eight hours. Okay, does that make sense? Sure, sure. So that the, the movement of vastly increased REM sleep and decreased intervals between REM sleep that occurs over an eight-hour sleep doesn't compress into six hours if we only sleep six hours. It cuts off at six hours. So we'll be, we'll be dreaming longer after six hours, but not as long as we would be if we'd slept the whole eight. Okay? Well, so that's an argument for nine hours of sleep. <laughs> 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 it's practice, Piper. It's good for you. <laughs> I like it. See? Massage, relaxation, baths, right? Stretching, naps, naps, spending our days in ways that, that don't exhaust us, and now sleeping for nine hours. This is all good, solid practice. Is that pretty steady, person to person? It is actually. I mean, I think, I think if you do meditation and, and other, other practices like that, you're going to play with it. You're going you're gonna to shift it and change it. And I think that there's now research being done on that. This is a kind of like baseline, um, you know, normal human cycle thing. So can I just clarify the hypnagogic moments? Um, I mean, there's dreams in there, but they're not the same kind of dreams as you have right. an hour and a half later when you're in REM. Exactly. They're called dreamlets. 
Yeah. Because they're not quite fully dreams and they have a kind of waking sleeping quality. Yeah. You may have noticed, those of you who've done you know, week-long or longer retreats, that you need to sleep less and less as the retreat goes on, that meditation somehow takes the place or does the work of sleep in some way. So that would be a way that I think it does change depend on what, what we're, depending on what we're doing. Which is an argument for longer retreat. Which is another argument for longer retreat. Okay, we need a, we need a list. <laughs> we need a flip chart. Okay, so, so in general, if you do sleep about eight hours, you'll have about five to seven dream cycles a night. Y- yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so that's that's um that's one map of sleep, and I want to put next to it another um, map of sleep, which is which is the Mahayana. To to take the the world of the night, to take sleeping and dreaming and rest seriously as part of our practice, <clears throat> is to include the cycle of things happening underground. So even though a retreat seems so interior and quiet and all of that, there's actually a tremendous amount going on in the psyche. And it takes some time to let, to, even if it's 24 hours, 48 hours, to let things go fallow and to let what needs to happen underground to integrate everything that occurred during the retreat to happen. So, so when we're talking about looking at our practice slash lives like this, we're talking about integrating all of those cycles of active and quiet, of above ground and underground, of really taking seriously what happens in the dark, what happens underground, what happens that we're not conscious of, we're not aware of, and giving it the space it needs to happen. This is so critical because that's the, that's the part of our lives we tend to just... Eh, no time for that and and it's crucial yeah it's how you really get it so that you can take it out into the world and, and that's not mm-hmm. yeah 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 and in fact you might say that you know that period is over when you feel ready to step out into the world that's the signal because you can't make a rational decision about that since it's happening in the deeper levels the signal has to come from the deeper levels that it's time to do the next thing move into the next bardo so so um, Lewis Hyde in his fabulous book The Gift The Erotic Life of Property um, says that we suffer gratitude that, that when we receive something that's really important to us we have to, we, we have to suffer it for a while which is that we have to make it our own and, and that that's, this is the same process of integration and once we have suffered it suffered the gratitude made it our own then we are capable of passing the gift on but we can't kind of like catch it and throw it like that. We have to catch it, swallow it, eat it, digest it, create something new, and pass it on. That's when we gobble the dregs. Yeah. All right, the Mahayana map. Um, it divides, you're, you're going to be beginning not to be surprised to hear, it divides the night into three, three um 
session, three phases, and see if you can catch the correspondence with the trikayas, the three bodies, in these three phases of dreaming in the night. In the early part of the night, um, you have what are called karmic dreams. We just touched on this before. Um, This is a time when your habitual tendencies are activated and appear in dreams. It's associated with, um, in the the Tibetan sense of deep sleep, not in the neuroscientific sense. (coughs) Excuse me. And um, the humors that are associated with this part of the night, um, the humor that's associated is phlegm. Um, So it's the phlegmatic time of night, which means um, that which is heavy and thick and slow, like karma. (laughs) So these dreams are made up of um, the residue of, of our current life, what's happening in our lives right now, our tensions and entanglements and preoccupations and our memories. And it's also made up of the residue of our past lives. And it's considered easier to transform dreams about the stuff that's happening in our lives currently than it is to transform stuff from our past lives. The further we get from it, the more it's had um, consequences, the deeper, the harder it is to untangle. So these karmic dreams are considered personal and diagnostic. They'll tell you something about your state. And these are the dreams that we project our personal meaning onto. So that's, you all have a sense of what that kind of dream is, right? That's pretty clear? In the, in the second phase I'm just about to talk about, there's a, lot of, a whole lot of purging going on, and it isn't all up to us that we get help. <laughs> but in this first phase, if we, yeah, if we want to, we could, we could set the attention to help purify that karma. Um, recently, I was, I was really interested to read about uh, a, a neuroscientific finding that that kind of stuff which is called in neuroscience day residue, that those kinds of dreams, they occur the night of whatever it is that you've been cogitating about, whatever it is you're preoccupied with. And then there's a dream lag where they, the, the material will reemerge a week later. So I just I wanted to tell you that, to, to watch that. If you have a karmic dream that is really letting you know there's something going on that's important that you need to attend to, watch your dreams a week later and see if that same material reemerges, perhaps already be, beginning to be transformed and perhaps pointing the way to continue to work with transforming it. Okay, so, so this kind of dream, karmic dream, is generated out of the self. Okay, this is what the self thinks is interesting. Okay? If you want to know what your self thinks is interesting, look at your karmic dreams. Um, all right, in the second part of the night, this is no longer what the self thinks is, 
it's no longer entirely what the self thinks is interesting. So um, after midnight, in the early hours of the morning, there's um, there's a phase where. Uh, the ghosts are, are walking and the coyotes are howling. And it's the time where if we tend to wake up in the night, this is when we'll wake up and spend some time there. Uh, the humor that's associated with it is bile which is generally agitation and anger. So, so if, the, if the first part of the night is the kind of heavy, slow, thick entanglement with karma, the second phase of the night is when we begin to interpermeate with other things and, and our stuff gets agitated. It's fiery. It's more fiery. Um, we're permeable to the influences of ghosts and coyotes. And... and um, other dimensions of things. And our dreams are a kind of co-creation between the um, preoccupations of the self and these other um, things that come toward us at that time of night. And this is where um, if we take it Purification can really happen. And again, I'll hold that part of the conversation until we talk about difficulties because there's a whole, a whole different way of looking at the spectrum of stuff that happens during this time of night. Nightmares, insomnia, awaking, um, all that kind of stuff. There's a different way of thinking about it. And we'll, and we'll get there in a bit. Okay, so if the first, if the if the karmic dreams are generated out of the concerns of the self, these dreams in the middle are gener- are a kind of co-creation between the self and autonomous processes of the universe, however we experience them. And then in the third part of the night, the the, the time closest to the dawn, we get dreams of natural clarity. And these are associated with lighter sleep. And the humor that goes with them is wind or prana. So we've moved to the lightest um, kind of consciousness. And dreams of natural clarity, um, in dreams of natural clarity now, we've moved to where we're not... Our, our self is no longer involved. We're not co-creating. We're not dealing with the, the obsessions of the self. We're just open to influence. And these dreams are given rather than created or even co-created. So these are um, strange dreams, dreams that, that, that are out of the pattern of our usual kinds of dreams, our usual um, interests and, and occupations in our dream lives, not linked to the usual way we see things or think about things. They can contain advice uh, and they can contain predictions, not only for ourselves but for others as well. So when we enter into 
the um, life of having dreams of natural clarity, there's an immediate assumption of responsibility. We're no longer dreaming just for our individual selves. We're dreaming for others as well. And, And we take on an obligation and a responsibility to turn what we learn in those dreams into something real in life, something actual. So these dreams are impersonal, objective in some sense, and collective. They apply to more than just our individual psyches. And they're not particularly diagnostic of our individual states, although they might say something about our collective state. You can receive um, teachings and um, initiations, both from teachers living and dead and also from the Dakinis. The Dakinis are um, figures in in both Tibetan and Chinese um, Buddhism that are sort of the quintessential figures of the Sambhogakaya, the dream body, the dream world. Um, They're intermediate and they bring the teachings of the Dharmakaya into the Nirmanakaya, into our actual lives. The the name Dakini means um, one who walks on the sky. And in Chinese, the translation into Chinese of Dakini is um, the mothers who, double meaning, either walk in the sky or are the activity of emptiness. So you've got that Sambhogakaya state where the realm of pure energy is, is um, the realm of pure suchness is turning into a kind of energy that's on its way to becoming matter but isn't yet. And the Dakinis are the ones who make that transition. So they come specifically, they have um, human awakening as a particular interest of theirs and they don't care how it happens and so sometimes they come as very beneficent supportive figures and sometimes they come in really scary, horrific, kick-ass kind of ways. Um, if they sense there's an obstacle that will respond only to scary, kick-ass kind of methods, that's what they'll bring. No problem. Um, and again, we'll talk about a little bit more about that with sleep difficulties, but you're, you're maybe beginning to see a theme that even when we have really frightening imagery or horrific imagery, from this perspective, there's nothing wrong with that. That's just the Dakinis coming to show us something that needs purifying.
I mean, it may be that with with dream yoga, you could condense the whole process into a ten-minute cycle. That's possible. I don't know that. There's, I know that I know that some of the the yogis uh, in Tibet who, 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 for whom this is their major practice just sort of sleep any chance they get and they'll take 10 minutes if they've got to, you know, all throughout the day so that would argue for something something being able to happen in that time that with meditation you get much more gamma synchrony in your brain which is probably restful probably restorative in some way yeah what is that? Uh, um, it, it's that our brains are pretty active kind of chaotic places and and um, in fact there, there there might be sort of um, a lot of what's happening is a kind of competition for what comes into consciousness there's a lot of stuff going on underneath the surface kind of competing to see what's going to pop into what's going to be strong enough to pop into consciousness but in, in gamma synchrony you have a, a, a massive lowering of that kind of chaotic firing and, and competitive feeling and the brain tends to the activity of the brain tends to start moving in waves through the brain in, in more synchronous waves through the brain rather than kind of chaotic stuff happening all over the place so it's, it's a more kind of loping wave-like motion than a kind of frantic um, jerky motion you described um, this third stage as the dreams being strange. Mm-hmm. Um, how do we characterize strange? <laughs> with you know, with respect to dreams. Yeah. Um, so not habitual. Not habitual. Okay. Yeah. Oh, it's like oh, wow. Like a new dream that just came yeah. Out of Where'd that come from? Right. Yeah. That's not my usual. All right. But then if it becomes habitual. Mm-hmm then does that mean it's become a karmic dream? Or you're not paying attention and it's going to keep it's, yeah. coming back until you pay attention to it. Yeah. It can also be that. So, so one, of the, one of the ways to make um, the distinction, you, know, you, you might want to ask, well, how, how do I distinguish between a karmic dream and a dream of natural clarity? How, how, how do I know whether this is for me or this is... Um, for the world or, or my community. And, um, and one thing to do is to see if you can differentiate between a symbol and a sign in a dream. So this is also in response to your question. A symbol is something personal. A symbol is something you can project meaning onto. A, a sign is impersonal. A sign's meaning comes from somewhere else. If you're having dreams with lots of symbols in them, that's a kar- those are karmic dreams. If you're having dreams with signs, which will mean the same thing to everybody, right? Because they have an impersonal quality. Those are dreams of natural clarity. Could you give an example? Yeah. Give an example. Yeah. So I can with that. Okay. Um, so, so a classic example would be. Um, Moses sees a burning bush and that's a sign of God it's not Moses says gee I wonder what the burning bush means to me you know it, 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 it is God it, so, so its meaning is independent of whatever Moses might feel or think about it isn't it? yeah yeah and so this sign it 
is immediately understood? Yeah. No, not always not always immediately understood. It might take a while to understand it. Is it always dramatic like that? No. That's the thing that you're kind of burning bush. Symbol in a dream is every time we do a dream amplification or a dream interpretation and we say, Oh, this is that or that, you know um, those we're working with symbols, right? They're personal and we and we we discern a meaning from them that have significance for us. Okay, a sign is when something feels as though it intrudes into our dream, it doesn't come out of our usual understanding, and it doesn't feel personal. It feels like we're being given something, or we found something. Okay, Uh, how many times in a dream have you discovered something, and it can be an object, it can be something that just is like, wow, what is that? You can you can certainly have a symbolic relationship to a sign. Try you could go to what does this mean for me? But the sign will have a quality that is is different than that as well. Two ways of working with that. One is to bring it into your meditation uh-huh. and ask the basic inquiry, what is it? What is it? And just follow that and see what happens. See what arises in in meditation. The other is um, as you're falling asleep, you set the intention to understand more clearly what the, what that sign was. If if there's more um, seamlessness between sleeping and waking, you, you'll the, your dreams and your waking life will start talking to each other, and 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 things will occur, begin in one place and continue in the other place. So 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 the whole trick there is um, ma- making meaning is a kind of speech. Um, what we're talking about is a kind of listening instead. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. The point of dream yoga is to is to reveal the, the, the emptiness of a sense of someone doing this. Yes. Okay. And um, when we get when we when we start speaking about witnessing and lucidity, you'll see that the the move from dream into sleep is a move into confronting that, that very question. Who is the who? There is sensory input, although it's greatly reduced, but we all probably have the experience of um, an alarm going off and we incorporate the alarm into our dreams. You know, we, we make a story about what the alarm is. So, so there is that kind of direct thing. But I, also there is um, an openness to a different level of exchange where it's not at the sensory level it's more at the imaginal level so if we're sleeping under a tree what might be influencing our dream is the dream of the tree right so i mean that's the whole difference between that kind of consciousness and a waking kind of consciousness yeah Okay, then there's a last kind of dream called a clear light dream. And this begins to speak to Stephen's question um, about who's, who's dreaming. Um, again, I'll just touch on this now and we'll come back to it and do it in more detail later. But in a, in a clear light dream, the dreamer has entered the clear light of sleep, which means has entered a state of deep sleep still aware. 
And then a dream emerges in that deep sleep. And the dreamer is able to maintain a separation from it, to witness it rather than participate in it. So you can have a dream in which you're a character that you, that you have no identification with. It's just something arising in sleep and falling away again. And you're, to the extent that there's a sense of you, your primary relationship is with that clear light of sleep and the dream doesn't disturb that doesn't disturb that identification with the clear light of sleep that, that takes for most people a fair amount of um, dream yoga to be able to experience that Generally, takes a lot of. For most people, it takes a lot of dream yoga to start experiencing those um, that kind of deep sleep and, and identification with the natural light of deep sleep and disidentification with the the ego in the dream. between different brain states and, and this Mahayana map of the night um, I would say that research is probably still in its infancy but if it does exist the place to look for it would be in the writings of Alan Wallace B. Alan Wallace who, who, who's done a lot of work on, on this and would know <laughs> if, um, if, if, there, if there had been actual studies done on that um, the second one was about how, why do we forget? Yeah, yeah, that's a really good question. It's what I know is that in in sleeping, when we move from one phase to another, the the last phase really drops away. Which is why if we don't remember the dream in the moment we wake up right after the dream, it'll be gone as soon as we move into light or delta sleep. Um, I don't know. I don't know why that is, but it's really interesting to me because there is a kind of tathagata quality about that. Okay, there's this, and then there's this, and then there's this, and there's this. And part of tathagata is that when there, when you have such an experience of suchness, and something fills the universe, it obliterates whatever was there before, so that each moment obliterates the previous moment, which is how practice um, cuts through the, the knots of karma you know if you really live in that Tathagata place there's no continuity of karma from one moment to the next each moment is completely self-contained and, and the states at night seem to be like that and that's more a poetic observation than, than anything else so is there a virtue in that is there something to learn from that rise, absolute rising and falling? When it's gone, it's gone and leaves no residue in the next state. The moment rises and falls leaves no residue in the next moment. 
Yeah, so, so here's Nirmanakaya and Dharmakaya. The Nirmanakaya, the world of form, the material world, is made up of residue. I mean, the next moment happens because of residue, right? Causes and conditions lead to the next moment. And that's going on all the time. And then simultaneously, you've got Dharmakaya, which is this other aspect of things where there's no residue at all, where it's just, you know, like, boom, each moment is complete and utter and fills the universe itself. Both things are true and both things are happening simultaneously. And that's the binocular vision. So... When I was talking last, God, it was only last night, um, about standing in the Sambhogakaya in the dream body, being able to see that boom, 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 Tathagata quality of things, that's the, that's the eye of realization. And then the eye of enjoyment is seeing the continuities of, of the material world, of the world of form. Um, I, I love you this moment because I loved you last moment, and I know you know. And that's that's what we enjoy. That's what we delight in. And both are equally true. Both are equally true and simultaneously true. Yes. And so, so so much of you know of our practice is really trying to be able to hold both of those visions simultaneously, and then actually bring them together so it's not binocular vision. It's one. It's one field of vision. These talks are made available through your donations to Cloud Dragon, the Joan Sutherland Dharma Works. To learn more about her teachings and to make a tax-deductible contribution, please visit our donate page at joansutherlanddharmaworks.org.